Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all on this Wednesday morning. Just when we thought spring was here, it got cold last night. I know I had to turn the heat back on. It's so depressing. Last week, or two weeks ago, someone left a copy of the right commentary here. Anyone missing their copy? If you decide you are, it's going to be up here. I'll have it right up here. So just a few bit, bits of housekeeping before we start. Um, I misspoke two weeks ago. If you have your bookmark schedule, you will see that we are meeting this week. We are not meeting in Holy Week. I was getting confused with Ash Wednesday where we did meet on Ash Wednesday, but we are not meeting on the Wednesday of Holy Week. And then we, we will be back together the first week of Easter. All right, so we'll have another break. So we had, it's two weeks since the last lesson. It will be two weeks again until the next lesson. So your bookmark is correct. And so if you've got this schedule, just follow it and you're good. If you do not have one, we have these bookmarks on the tables at both doors or you can see Susan afterwards. And Susan will send an email out to the whole group just confirming all of that in writing because showing up to Bible study when there isn't one is a bummer. So now that we've got that clear, we're going to open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this Lenten season. And as we begin to prepare ourselves for Holy Week, we ask you to enter into us and fill us with your spirit. Inspire us to submit ourselves with confidence and courage and humility to the experience of Holy Week that we may be inspired in new and profound ways by the story of your son's resurrection and defeat of death at Easter. In addition, we ask your special prayers upon those in our community who need your strength and your healing touch. Those spoken or unspoken, and especially Effie, Rob, Bob, Taylor, David, Melanie, Jack, and Jean Marie. All these we ask in your prayers, in your holy son's name. Amen. Now before we get started on our lesson, because we are discussing today chapter 19 of Luke, and chapter 19 is the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday, and we are about to celebrate Palm Sunday in just a few days, Ann Koch brought a poem that we might use to begin our lesson, which she said is delightful, and I agree. So this is The Donkey. When fishes and forests walked, and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. When monstrous head and sickening cry, and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody, of all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms beneath my feet the donkey. 
So Anne is a great poet, and I am not. Um, and I, I wish to appreciate poetry more, and so I'm glad for the nudge to have a little poetry at Bible study. So today is chapter 19. We've got a little bit of context here for chapter 19 because Jesus has been moving slowly and slowly away from Galilee, Capernaum, where he sort of grew up, spent his adulthood, and moving toward Jerusalem and his ultimate death on the cross. Today, we see that final turn. So if we remember our geography, Jesus has come down the eastern side of Israel following the Jordan River, come all the way down to just north of the Dead Sea and turned toward the west, entering Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And so if you've got your maps there, you can sort of see how he's made almost a backwards L going down the River Jordan through Jericho and Jerusalem. So we see him pass through Jericho at the first half of chapter 19 and then arrive in Jerusalem in the second half. So the, the sections that we're going to be working with today begin with Zacchaeus. Then we go with the king and the servants and the money. Then we have the triumphal entry and then what did I call that? Yeah, cleansing the temple. Cleansing the temple. So a lot of action in today's chapter, so we're going to just jump right in. First, who would like to sing the song of Zacchaeus? Anyone? Yes? How many of you taught Sunday school? You got it, Carolyn? Go ahead. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Okay, you know, you know it. So that's, you've got the whole thing. There you go. So this story of Zacchaeus is delightful, and children love it. And why? Because Zacchaeus was short, right? This is a hilariously comedic story. All right, Luke includes this story. Now, I do want to note, this is only in Luke. Much of what we have done throughout the entire book of Luke is doubled up in the other synoptic gospels. Do you remember at the very beginning we talked about how Mark was written first, Matthew and Luke were written about the same time after Mark was written, and they used the similar source material. So they pulled a lot of their story inspirations from Mark. So much of what we find in Luke and Matthew are found in both and also in Mark. Those are the synoptic gospels. Those three are very similar. John hangs out as something totally different. But Mark, Matthew, and Luke are very similar. Much of their stories overlap. This story does not. This is a Luke original. And so you will not find this in the other gospels. Luke uses this story to, I think, really great effect, right? So we have seen some dramatic shifts throughout the last few chapters, and as Jesus enters Jericho, really makes that final turn toward Jerusalem, he has this kind of seemingly ridiculous experience with an adult man who climbs a tree, right? This is, it's silly almost, but he takes the opportunity to, in essence, double down on this idea that grace and salvation is for every person, right? So we're going to take a look at Zacchaeus and how Luke turns this story in such a way. 
So Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. So we've discussed before that tax collectors are Jews, people from the community, right, from the block, who have turned against their people. They've begun to represent the Romans and the Roman interests at the expense of all of the people that they grew up with. There is, however, a pyramid scheme of tax collection, and there are people who are above just the tax collectors. Zacchaeus is one of them. So in essence, it's like the top of the Mary Kay pyramid. Zacchaeus is getting money from all the tax collectors who are getting money from all of their fellow Jews. So if a tax collector is really disliked, the chief tax collector is, epitomizes that dislike. And so as Jesus enters Jericho, Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, who has likely heard about Jesus, right? I mean, he's coming. He has created quite a stir, figures out how to get a glimpse at this man. Now, because he's short, he's not going to really get a chance to see Jesus if he just stands on the side of the road, right? So he runs ahead, climbs a tree, and as Jesus comes by, just put yourself in Jesus' shoes, right? There is a man in a tree. And Jesus walks up to this man in a tree, knowing who he was, and says, you better climb down because I'm going to stay with you tonight. This is a shocking moment. Zacchaeus has this stirring inside that draws him out to the crowds, right? Now, if he was just kind of ugly and elitist and aloof, he wouldn't have cared to see Jesus, right? He would have just stayed behind in his nice house. But something compels him out to the road, and Jesus sees through whatever kind of facade this chief tax collector has and sees his desire in his heart for something else, right? He sees Zacchaeus wants something that Jesus is offering, and Jesus doesn't hold back. And he brings Zacchaeus down out of the tree, and Zacchaeus' response is profound, right? He says, I'm going to give away half of everything I own, and anyone I have ever cheated, I will pay back fourfold. And what does Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Story after story after story has brought us to this moment just before Jesus, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And Luke lifts up this last story to show us that even the chief tax collector, even the chief most disliked person, has the capacity, has been given the invitation by God to come to God, to be saved, to have their life saved for the good, and that Jesus is not going to judge anyone who seeks out that salvation. In fact, he's going to go above and beyond jumping every kind of social hurdle, undermining every kind of social grace, so to speak, in order to bring even the most lost person to God. And Zacchaeus epitomizes that lost person, and Jesus brings him to him. But people don't like this. Those traveling with him don't like that he has given this grace 
and given this love to a man who has done nothing to earn it. And so they begin to grumble. And then Jesus tells a pretty difficult parable. So before we move on to section two, any questions about Zacchaeus? And I should have started out by saying any questions beyond like chapter 18 or earlier too. Okay, so Anne just said that in the rear, I love the chapel in the chapel, um, but in the back of the church, there's a children's chapel and Zacchaeus is in the tree in the stained glass window in that chapel. Is that one you designed? So Anne has designed four windows in this chapel and that's one of them. So go poke your head into the children's chapel on your way out and see it. Questions or thoughts? Good question. So the question is, is there a significance to the amount he says he will pay back? And I, I have not looked that up specifically. Um, four is not any particular number. Um, I think, though, that it's likely Luke is trying to emphasize the grand nature of his payback, right? If we're honest, collecting taxes was not a pleasant experience, but fourfold return is well beyond what people would probably decide is a reasonable repayment, right? I mean, typically you repay someone plus interest, maybe you repay them plus interest plus a little extra because of the wrong you committed. That might get you to twice as much as you, but he's doing four times. I mean, I think the extravagance of his generosity is really the point of the story, and that because of his extravagance, remember the story we heard in chapter 18 was of the young ruler, right? So you had the image of this wealthy young ruler who had followed all of the laws, at least he said he did, and when Jesus said, well, all you've got to do now is just sell all your stuff and give your money to the poor, and he couldn't. And we transition pretty quickly to the story of Zacchaeus, where his response to God's grace is overwhelming abundance. That's what I take away from this story, is that we're, we've talked about it in here before. When you experience the real depth of God's love, you can't help but just gush over it. And unfortunately, a lot of people really haven't. And I think for many people, the experience of God's love is not real until something bad happens. And sometimes it's really bad. And so many people have just not experienced perhaps the really bad yet. For those who have experienced that kind of incredible grace of God, there's almost nothing you can do to repay that love. And so the abundance that Zacchaeus kind of pours out is the point, not really the amount. It's just that it's overwhelming. Good question. So Jewish law says in, to repay a debt, you repay four times over. Well done. Well, Suzanne's got it. So apparently Jewish law says, this is where I fail. Um, you know, Jewish law says when you repay a debt, you repay four times over. So he's following the law is what your footnote says. I like my answer more. <laughs> but fine, he's following the law. Good for Zacchaeus. 
So after Zacchaeus' story, we shift into part two. And part two is this... I don't, I don't care for this parable. Um, for those of you who have read it, this is not an easy parable. This is certainly not warm, fuzzy. Um, this is kind of harsh. There is a purpose to it being harsh. And so we're going to discuss purpose. But I want to just explain the parable real fast. It's relatively long. I won't read the whole thing. But the short of it is a ruler... Meh, a, a guy who's in charge, a master leaves, comes back as a king, however that happened. Um, but he leaves and leaves servants with a little bit of money. The way that the parable is told is that he brings ten servants to him, gives each servant a pound. Um, that money is then left. There's no direction, really, to these servants. They're just left with some of this money. When the ruler comes back as a king... Then he calls the servants to him, and he doesn't call all ten to him, at least as the story says. The first servant comes and says, I've taken your one pound and made it ten. And the king says, well, then I can trust you with a lot. Go be in charge of ten cities. Second servant comes and says, I've taken your one pound and made it five. Good work. You can go be in charge of five cities. Third servant comes and says, I was scared of you and what you may do to me if I did something wrong. And so I just buried your one pound to make sure it was safe. And now I can return your one pound to you on your arrival return. And he freaks out. And this king says, well, I will use your words against you. If you think I am harsh and scary, I'm going to be harsh and scary. And this is what he says. Well, he says he punishes the man for not doing anything good with the pound, and then the people, he says, give that one pound to the servant who has ten. But then the people around him say, but the guy already has a lot. And the king says, I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Hmm. Just touches your heart, doesn't it? <laughs> so, end, end scene, right? I mean, that's, that's the parable. So let's unpack what this could mean, right? So this is, this is harsh. It, the first part's relatively easy to understand, right? It's, it's not difficult for us because we use some of this language a lot about giftedness. We are all gifted in certain ways, given talents, opportunities, treasures, and God expects that we will do good with what we have been given. And if we do very good with what we've been given, then there's a common understanding that we'll be blessed with even more because we can take the blessings God has given us and multiply them, right? So God is the idea being God is almost strategic. With those who can multiply blessings the most, the most will be given. It is easy for us to understand this because we, in general, have been blessed. If we were a group of people who were very in touch with our lack, with our struggle in the world, if we were you know, if, if half of us had experienced homelessness at some point, or perhaps we are extremely vulnerable 
in our capacity to, say, feed our children or our families tonight, or if our jobs were tenuous, we wouldn't, don't know if we're going to get paid this week or next, or if we could pay our utility bills. I mean, if we had that kind of lifestyle, this story does not feel good. Because in essence, it's, it is saying that those who can do good with a lot of stuff get a lot of stuff. And those who can't do good with a lot of stuff get nothing. Even worse, Jesus is really pointing toward the judgment that will come for the enemies of God. Those who stand in the way of God's work in the world will be like those enemies who are slaughtered in front of the king. Dang. This is, this is not bring the children to me, Jesus. This is harsh. If we put all this in context, Jesus has been <clears throat> preaching and teaching about the necessity, and that's important, the necessity to turn toward God to accept the invitation of God, to accept the grace and love of God, to become one of God's disciples in order to reflect that light in the dark places of the world. At this point in the story, the RSVP time for that invitation is coming to a close, right? The party's about to start. The window for you to respond is about to shut. And the judgment is coming more and more real. And so Jesus is pointing more and more explicitly to this judgment moment. We're going to see that very tangibly when Jesus enters the temple at the end of this chapter. But right now he's pointing, so we've got this first moment with Zacchaeus, where the invitation is still for everyone. Then we shift to this moment of the parable where the invitation is still for everyone, but make no mistake that if you don't respond or reply to this invitation, it isn't forever. There is a moment at which invitation is over and judgment begins. And this parable, although it's more graphic than perhaps necessary, is clear about there being an opportunity for you to use your gifts, us, for us to use our gifts, and then opportunity over. And if you've missed the chance, you've missed the chance. And that's it. Now, as Episcopalians, we often don't like this kind of judgment stuff. Baptists love this, right? Um, <laughs> except for those of you who used to be Baptists and you've joined St. Michael, which I love. Um, but there are plenty of denominational or Christian traditions that find comfort in there being an end, right? There is a moment, and you've, you have a chance today, right? I mean, how many of you even did altar call, right? It's, it's kind of fascinating. And the, the presupposition of an altar call is you may not have tomorrow. Right? That's the point, right? Nothing is guaranteed. We have now. And seize the opportunity now because nothing else is promised. Just like Jesus says, the enemies of God will be slaughtered in front of God. You don't want to be slaughtered in front of God, right? It's that sort of thing, do you know where you're going when you die, right? That's a, that's a relatively effective uh, nudge towards salvation. 
right? I think it's less effective now. I, I joke with my colleagues that, you know, it's too bad hell isn't scary like it used to be because that was so effective for church growth. Um, but it's just, it's just not so effective anymore, um, which is a good thing overall, but it makes, you know, our jobs harder. Um, what we have here is the root of that kind of theology where there will be an end. If you seize the opportunity before the end, you're good. And if you don't, you know, you had your chance. This becomes, in the best sense, a fuel for evangelism, right? If you're in a tradition like ours that doesn't perhaps root itself in the fear of judgment, it's a whole lot easier to not go out and try to save your friends. But if you do root yourself in this idea that judgment's coming and you will be slaughtered and burned for eternity, then like the friend of yours or your sibling or your neighbor or your coworker who has not taken advantage of this opportunity, you really want them to because it, it really is this expression of love, right? I, I don't want you to burn in hell, right? I mean, it, it, sounds, it sounds almost comic if you say it wrong, but if you believe it, then there is this sort of genuine care that you don't want this person to be eternally damned, right? I mean, that has worked for a long time. It still works in many places. And so that's really the parable that is holding up this opportunity. Now, if we talk about some theology, that is the story we receive in Luke. As Anglican Christians, we don't... Mm, Anglican theology is such that there is an end point. We certainly believe that there is a moment at which God's kingdom will triumph over evil. However, it is not bound necessarily to our physical life experience. That is an unusual idea. That, that's a complication of our human experience. It makes total sense that as human people, we see things through our own lenses, that our self-centeredness, in just the purest sense, not a negative, but our self-centered experience of life would mean that my life is how God defines the beginning and the end. As God is way transcendent beyond our individual lives. It does not mean that there isn't a moment at which God's kingdom triumphs over evil. And those who have chosen evil will hurt. But I do think that we have to expand, not we don't have to, Anglican theology expands the limits of God's invitation beyond simply this life. If you've ever gone to an Episcopal funeral, and I've said this many times, that the best reason to be Episcopalian is to be buried in the Episcopal Church, our funeral is the best. And I'm Sorry for all of our friends in here aren't Episcopalian. I just grab a prayer book, take it home with you, read it, because you may want to become Episcopalian before, you know. Um, so in our liturgy, there is this clear, clear point toward 
hopefulness of the resurrection, right? Yes, this life is over, but very specifically, this life is over and the next life has begun. There is a now about resurrection that leaves our service on a high, right? There is a clear incline to our funeral narrative, right? Our liturgy. You begin in this silent, almost chant, right? This sort of tomb moment, and you leave on a high. It really reflects the way that we will see our liturgy next week, right? There is a death moment, yes. Death is not the end because Christ has destroyed death. And we believe that our resurrection life starts now. Because of that, God's truth and reality transcends whatever our individual life here on earth is. That is a wildly complex idea that might be relatively new. So, are there questions? I kind of didn't want to say that. Um, yes. Baptists make the best Episcopalians, Madeline. Okay. Well, so let me... I, I like that idea because this is not... I want to make sure that we focus... We do not focus on the judgment. It's a real thing, right? I, I don't want us to ignore that judgment is real. Mostly because, I, and this is just me, I don't, I don't mind God being a little scary, that does not bother me. I don't need, I've often said to people, you know, when I was a youth minister, I used to say, Jesus is really not your buddy. Like, I don't need buddy Jesus. I need savior Jesus, right? I don't need God to be my nightlight. I want God to be my foundation, my salvation, and the strength of God is actually an intimidating thing. That's all right. But, Right, you don't have to go, you don't have to go so far as like fire and brimstone. Would you say hellfire and damnation? I love that. Um, but we don't have to go scary, no, but intimidating. I'm okay with intimidating. I mean, God is still God, right? Um, however, what I like about what you said is that for us, although the judgment is real, yes. This is the nudge to seize the opportunity to use our blessings. That's really what I want us to take away from this story. Not to end with the scary slaughter, but to really remember that God's given us an opportunity to multiply our giftedness for the good of every person. Those of us who, like you said, take the risk to use the gifts we've been given— with God's help, they will be multiplied. I think that's what I take away from this, is that it's not just us either. It is us with God will multiply our giftedness for the good of people beyond us. The hard message for me here is not even the slaughter, but it's for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. That's, that's hard, except that I receive that part of the story as my charge to use what I have to help others have so that then they can use what they have to bless others. And so it's not simply 
God in a vacuum giving these blessings to people and those who didn't get any, out of luck. Part of what we are to do with blessings we receive is make sure others receive them from us. And that in receiving them from us, they have received them from God and can be multiplied for the good of the world. So that's the interpretive turn I take. Great, that was the question I didn't want. Um, so so the, the question in essence is, can you be saved after you're dead? Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to first start by saying I don't, I, I am just like you. I change and grow and learn new things and make new decisions too. So just because I might think something today doesn't mean I'm going to think it tomorrow. But um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what has brought me to thinking that there's got to be something about the idea of salvation after our physical death. When I was in grad school, I was a TA for a systematic theology course, which is systematic theology is basically like legal theology. You know, if, if this, then that, and you kind of string that along in order to make it rational, I guess is the best way to say that. I was tasked with arguing the position of sort of the neo-atheists. So Charles Dawkins and Chris Hitchings and some of those people, remember they were popular a while back. Um, with, with, the, with the idea, the kind of that philosophical approach uh, idea being, you can't really understand someone's position until you can defend it, and then you understand it. Doesn't mean you accept it, but at least then you truly understand. And so I went in as a young, idealistic person, and I admit that I was probably really kind of in the camp of universalism, in the sense that, uh, did you all remember reading that book, If Grace is True? Did you ever hear this book? Um, it was written by two Quaker leaders, and it's a nice short little book, If Grace is True, with the idea being, if grace is true, God will save every person. They take sort of the purity of Christ's mission and say, God's grace is infinite, period. And regardless, God will bring everyone into that loving embrace. That sounded pretty good to sort of my 24-year-old, you know, idealism, until I argued for the sort of neo-atheist group. And I say neo-atheists because they're not really atheists. Um, you know, if you really want atheism, then nobody's really an atheist if they don't kill themselves, because it doesn't make sense True atheism means the purpose is gone altogether, so why even continue? Hello, Nietzsche, right? I mean, that's sort of what you get with Nietzsche. Instead, these people are faithful to empirical evidence, like science. Science becomes their god. It's not no god. It's just god shifts. Um, beside the point. Arguing that rooted me very clearly in the idea of free choice. Our choice, our free will, is fundamentally critical to I, everything I think Jesus did. The question then becomes, at what point can we and can we no longer choose? I am comfortable. 
I will say I'm comfortable with saying at, at our physical death, we can no longer make a choice. I'm comfortable with that. I'm also comfortable saying that our essence, our spirit, our soul exists beyond the physical body and that upon our physical death, if we come face to face with God, we can still say yes. And if we can still say yes, we can still say no. We have to have the ability to say no always, or pretty much the rest of the theology falls apart. Now, it doesn't mean anyone will say no, but I think we have to have the ability to say no. That is not universalism. Universalism takes the choice out of our hands and gives it only to God. And I think that the, in essence, what our gospel message is, what Jesus epitomizes is true love. And love is equally reciprocated. Love from one person, one side only is not true. And we have to be able to say yes and reciprocate God's love or else the love is false. And so I can't, I can't say anything more than that. We don't know. And that's, for me, why I love an Anglican Christianity, because we are comfortable with saying that sounds right, but we don't know. Um, that's okay. We don't have to know. Um, we can say that seems to be most faithful to the mission of Jesus that we have inherited in our Gospels. That's enough. So that's, that's where I'll leave that. And we can talk more about that. We'll have lots more chapters before we're done with Luke where we discuss things like the resurrection, and I think that's a very apropos conversation to continue. But we have to stop that today. So you can ponder that all through Holy Week. Um, and we're going to get into what becomes sort of the, the action of the chapter, right? So we've gone through Zacchaeus and the parable, the difficult parable, and now we get the triumphal entry, which I love. Palm Sunday is super. And so we're going to have a festival. For those of you who were not here last year, we started, um, we made a special request to only do Palm Sunday, not Palm Passion. Um, for most of us in here, we've probably always done Palm Sunday where you get this whiplash effect of like, yay, palms, ooh, death, right? I mean, it's, it, that's, it's sort of like this boom, like all of a sudden you like put those palms down because Jesus is dead, right? I mean, that's, it's this really harsh shift in the worship service. That is because after Vatican II, there was this decision strategically among a lot of churches, liturgical churches, that because people didn't go to church between Palm Sunday and Easter, they had to hear the passion story. And so what used to be separated throughout the week was coupled together. So you got Palm and Passion on the same Sunday because people wouldn't go to church until Easter. And so you couldn't just do Palm Sunday and Easter or you missed sort of the low point. I mean, you can't have the highs without the lows. And so you got the high and low at the same time on Palm Sunday and then Easter. Now, because we do have good attendance during Holy Week, you can appeal to the bishop to not do the Passion on Palm Sunday, which we did last year. So we're doing that again this year. And so it's super great. 
um, because we get to just be high the whole Sunday. It's, it's fun. And if you missed the bagpipes last year, you need to come on Sunday because they're outrageously wonderful. So Palm Sunday on Sunday, triumphal entry here in Luke. This is one of the only stories that you find in all four Gospels. Remember, John's a little different than Mark, Matthew, Luke, and this is one of only a few that are in all four. So when that kind of thing happens, we can put this story in perhaps the first tier of historicity to say it is most likely this really happened right? Much of the rest of the Gospels are great stories told by faithful people inspired by God to spread the news of Christ. But it's difficult to nail down the historicity of those stories unless you've got them in every version, then that happened, right? I mean, this is one of those things that this really did happen. So what I love about the triumphal entry, and we know this story pretty well, so we don't have to really spend a huge amount of time on it, what I think is most remarkable is the amount of time and effort Jesus puts into preparing for the moment when he enters Jerusalem. The context of this parade is that it's meant to mimic either, we could say it's meant to mimic a Roman conqueror parade, or I like to say it's meant to mock the Roman parades, because I like the sort of ironic, snarky Jesus. Um, he's really my favorite. And so, although if you want to go with mimic, that's fine. I go with mock, because Jesus is trying to get the most attention possible for the best reason. He wants everyone to seize the opportunity that God's presenting to them while they can. And so this moment is really the first nail in his coffin, so to speak, and he makes it as big a spectacle as possible. Geographically speaking, as he's coming from Jer Jericho, between Jericho and Jerusalem is basically this desolate desert. It's rocks, very few plants of any kind. You get one random tree. It's almost like in the Mojave where you get like a Joshua tree in the middle of nothing. That's sort of like what this space is. But as you get close to Jerusalem, particularly at the Passover, which would have been spring, things begin to turn green really fast as you get real close to the city. The city is multiple hills, Jerusalem being in the middle, and you've got to go up and over the Mount of Olives to get to Jerusalem. And so as they've been walking and walking and walking, they get to Bethany and Bethphage and they pick up a cult. And the cult that is referenced here echoes Zechariah chapter 9, 9, where Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on a colt. So Luke knows this story, and he shapes this story to echo the prophetic voice of Zechariah as they enter the city. Jesus is coming in the south end of the city, which is not the nice part of town. Because if you remember from your old medieval, you know, castle classes, what happens, right? You all had medieval castle classes, right? Yes. Um, what happens, what do all humans do? I, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, um, 
I used to love Oprah. I still love Oprah. Um, she's about the only person I'd probably travel to go see in person. Um, but she said at one point when she was interviewing Desmond Tutu, and they were talking about you know his response to people and how people you know um, give him such you know laud and glory and all the other stuff. Um, he said something very poetic about he's just a person, to which Oprah said, you know, I feel the same way because we all poop. <laughs> and that has stuck with me forever because I'm like, I'm enjoying this moment with Desmond Tutu and I thought, well, she's not wrong. So I say that because in a city, where does all of that go? Downhill. So the poorest people live the farthest down the hill, and it becomes messy and smelly and gross. Jesus enters Jerusalem at, quite literally, the dung gate. And that is the gate for the poorest people in the city, which is why it's important for us to realize that he really is mocking what would be a triumphal general's entry into the city. The Romans, when they conquered a people or they won a battle or a war, would parade into the city with banners flying on big powerful horses or the like. Jesus instead rides a donkey, a colt. So just like Zacchaeus climbing a tree, Jesus, a grown man, gets on a pony and rides in through the poop gate into Jerusalem, waving cheap branches of palm. And as he does it, the people chant Psalm 118. Psalm 118 gives the context of what's happening in that moment. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. These Jews would know Psalm 118 and they chant it as Jesus comes in. And all of that is super. But the real poignant moment in the triumphal entry comes as the Pharisees, who have been traveling with Jesus, try to get Jesus to shut up the crowd. If we imagine that Jesus has been doing all of this great teaching and healing, it's not just the people who have nothing to lose, who have been coming out to follow Jesus and to learn and to listen. It's also the people who have something to lose, who've joined the crowd to watch this man do incredible things. That's all well and good out in the desert, but now Jesus is making a spectacle coming into Jerusalem, and the people who have respectable positions in the community might be seen as part of the crowd because he is making such a ruckus. And they immediately go to Jesus and say, can you please get them to stop? You're drawing too much attention to us. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, if these people were silent, even the stones would cry out. That kind of chokes me up. There's a there is a climax to the beautiful story of God in this moment that creation cannot ignore. The people are not ignoring it, but even the world around cannot ignore the immense moment 
that is beginning with this triumphal entry. What is most poignant for us is that we are probably the kind of people who would be like the Pharisees following the crowd. We have something to lose. We, we are not the kind of people who have nothing, so why not? We have respectable positions. We have social clout and status in some way. Yet, we would likely be compelled to see this awesome teacher. And when we're out in the desert, that's all right. But when push comes to shove, and the people that we know may see us doing that thing that isn't perhaps socially acceptable, how do we respond? We are all in situations where in the confines of church, maybe we're perfectly comfortable using certain language, taking certain actions that are grace-filled and spirit-filled, and yet when we get out in the world, and we're around a person that may make us a little anxious or someone we want to impress or someone we want to like us? Do we use the same language and take the same actions and do things that make us vulnerable? Talk to the person who is awkward and weird at the party. Don't join in the gossip that's kind of ugly, even though it's funny. We all have those moments where we're tempted because the world tempts us. And that, to me, that one verse is the most powerful moment of the entire triumphal entry because that's probably us. And Jesus, Luke, begs the question, you know, are we just along for the ride? Or have we actually been transformed because of Christ? Now, I have two minutes for the cleansing of the temple. Very quickly, to end this chapter, we may have a couple minutes extra. Luke, Mark, and Matthew, not John, put as the chronology the triumphal entry right into the temple where Jesus cleanses the temple. John places this in a different, in a different spot. But these three gospel writers put it right after the triumphal entry. And it's important for us to know— we. We all get the cleansing of the temple, right? Jesus walks in, and they all say it a little differently. Either, you know, Jesus calls them a den of robbers in Luke. Um, in Matthew, you see that Jesus creates a whip of cords. In John, he's overturning tables. However it happens, this is a dynamic moment. You go from parade, palm-waving, to Jesus' anger. And Jesus' real violence— I mean, Luke softens it a touch, but the other gospel writers don't soften the violent expression that Jesus makes in the temple. So it's important for us to know that the marketplace in the temple was not inherently evil. Pilgrims were coming from all over Israel to make sacrifices at the temple for the Passover. In order to make a sacrifice based on Jewish law, you had to have a blemish-free animal. To bring a blemish-free animal all the way from wherever your home was was super difficult. And so an entire economy rose up 
to sell blemish-free animals to these pilgrims who've come all the way to the temple. The problem with that, although convenient, is that the point of the law was not to sacrifice an animal. The point of the law was to give over something that was valuable. And that encapsulates Jesus' whole mission. It's not the letter of the law. It's not the function. It's the purpose that is most important. And as Jesus disrupts the marketplace in the temple, he's reminding everyone that the law is in place so that we remember to be humble before God, that we remember to give out of gratitude from what everything God has given us. It is not meant to be convenient. It is not meant, God does not need your dead dove. That's not the point. The point is that you want that dove, and yet you give it in gratitude anyway. And so Jesus, in essence, flips over what had become the functional law in order to expose the purposeful law of God. And that's really what happens in the temple. But when you mess with the temple, you really put a target on your back. That is the moment when the people in charge, the leaders, begin to really plot Jesus' death. And Jesus knows. And so that's why the gospel writer, particularly Luke, has put this right after the triumphal entry. We've had this moment when the climax has hit, and immediately Jesus goes into the temple, causes such a ruckus that he can't help but be targeted now by the leadership. And we'll see in just a very short order, they figure out a way to condemn and arrest him and take him before Pilate. So, Palm Sunday is this Sunday. Holy Week follows between Palm Sunday and Easter. Pick at least one time to come to church during the week between Palm Sunday and Easter. If you do not have the schedule, our newsletters are on all the tables, and the centerfold of the newsletter has every bit, all the details of all the services between Palm Sunday and Easter. So pick one of those up, take it home. Pick one moment to come and experience something about Holy Week. We do Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and the vigil on Saturday night once a year. And they're really, they're really kind of great. And so pick one and enjoy it, and then you can celebrate Easter with us a week from Sunday. Thank you all. I'll see you in two weeks. Happy Easter. <laughs>